Now, this series, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the interaction of faith and action. Would you have macaroni without cheese? <laughs> the Bible, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, says, neither would you have faith without action. Now, we're going to kind of talk about that over, over the months together. We're going we're to spend a couple, couple of weeks in Acts. We'll go back and look at the Christmas story on uh, the 17th and look at how the wise men actually demonstrated their faith. And then um, after the kind of Christmas break from Sunday school, um, at, at the end of the month, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the book of Daniel. We'll talk about how Daniel and his contemporaries demonstrated their faith. We'll come back and look at the book of James, which really kind of helps us uh, identify this faith and works issue and its interplay, all those things. So um, um, join me here. We'll be in chapter 14 of Acts next week, but this week we're going to be in, um, in chapter 3. Now, the truth is, is it not, that occasionally you'll meet somebody in your life that's the whole package. Okay? I want you to think about the whole package. When I see Carrie Underwood and listen to Carrie Underwood sing, I'll often remark to Rhonda, wow, she's the whole package. She's, she's talented. She uh, uh, has this beautiful singing voice. And I don't know anything about this. Rhonda says she's kind of good looking too. I don't know anything about that. <clears throat> uh, this is church. we got to be careful with that, okay? Um, I'm told that in the realm of baseball, baseball scouts are looking for players sometimes that, six, that excel in five facets of the game. Those five are hitting for average, hitting for power, base running, throwing, and fielding. And they call those people five-tool players. Okay? And then they're looking for them. My guess is, as I, as I begin to look at the list... Uh, today, there aren't a whole lot of five-tool players. Uh, the last one I can remember in, in spades was somebody like along the lines of uh, Willie Mays. Here's, here's some uh, facts about him. He was a lifetime 302 hitter. He had 660 career home runs. I collected 3,283 hits along the way. He was also a great base runner, a great base, base stealer. He stole 338 bases. And if you're like me, the best one of the best fielding outfielders of all time with a great arm. So he was kind of a five-tool guy. Now, the truth is, I think, employers are looking to hire somebody who, who's kind of got the complete package. We admire a person who seems to have it all together. But the Bible tells us there's only one way that you and I can be perfectly whole. And it doesn't happen outside of Jesus. So, to me, that's an encouragement. <clears throat> Let's get into the story a little bit. Let me give you a little bit of the background on the book of Acts. Now, many of you know that the book of Acts is kind of a companion volume to the Gospel of Luke. Dr. Luke wrote them both. Acts comes as kind of the next chapter after uh, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, uh, Acts tells us what his disciples did after uh, those days. God accomplishes 
his purposes as Christians begin to testify to what they've seen and heard. But what's interesting that continues, and we see it really, really demonstrated early on in uh, the um, in the book, is you know all that trouble that Jesus had with the ruling council, uh, known as the Sanhedrin. It continues even after Jesus is gone. Um, and we're going to see that, a little bit at least, uh, identified here today. Uh, <clears throat> those 70 leaders, including the high priest, um, kept a watchful eye on what was going on, and the Romans kept a watchful eye on them. This council supervised, but one thing they did was they supervised the operation of the temple. And what was interesting, and I find really intriguing, is uh, we're, we're going to read about Peter and John today and some of the things they did. Peter in particular, what you got to realize is that the disciples didn't become un-Jewish just because the resurrection had taken place. Their Jewishness took on a much different meaning, but they were still attending uh, temple services. They were uh, doing the sacrifices, all those kinds of things. But while they were doing that, they were identifying to people around them. They would meet like they did in this uh, particular story in places like Solomon's Colonnade where they would, when people would gather, they would bear witness of the resurrection. They would talk to people about those things. They're going to do that here in this story. They're going to use, uh, 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 they're going to use a, a, something that took place that was pretty dramatic as kind of a springboard for that. Now, the center of the council's power was the temple itself. The followers continued to teach and pray after his ascension, after his resurrection. Peter and John have come in the early verses of chapter 3, have come to the temple as they are um, normally doing, as they did. They crossed paths with a man who was disabled. As I read his story again this morning, I'm reminded that this guy had been, um, according to the the biblical account, he had been lame since before birth. Now, how, how would they know that? But remember, Luke was a doctor. So um, uh, it's kind of the idea here. Um, rather, that he was disabled. He was begging. Uh, Peter says, we don't have any money, but why don't you just get up and walk? And he does. The man then enters the temple courts on restored legs and begins to praise God um, and the people react. And that's where our story picks up then and where we'll pick it up in verse 11. Steve Blair, can I get you to read 11 down through 15 and we'll launch into this story. It's interesting here. Um, in our passage, the man who's been healed 
physically grabs onto Peter and John and holds onto them. He wants to talk to them. Uh, he's been dramatically healed, and he grabs onto them. Now, in context, why do you think this is so? Why does he grab them and kind of hold on to them? Say it again, Cindy. Oh, well, I think certainly they're going to straighten that out if that's the thought. But he's, he's grateful to them, certainly, because after he met them, his life dramatically changed. So gratitude, I think, is, is one, of the, uh, one of the reasons. Cindy, you mind to look down at your Bible? Read verse 9 and 10. This is a big deal. Now look, look on at verse 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to, to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. So you've got this idea. Uh, I mean, I, I went back and read this story again this morning. I'd read it earlier a couple of times this week. Um, here's a guy who they have never seen in any state other than sitting uh, in a place where he'd see a lot of people begging it's it, by the way if, if I read it right and I'm not I'm not going to go back and look for it but if you're scanning it there if, if I've read it right I, I think it's interesting that that Dr. Luke says that um, Peter grabbed him by his right hand isn't it interesting that he didn't just say his left hand or grabbed him by the hand grabbed him by his right hand is that in there did I remember that hey the, what detail this is the now, Dr. Luke is going to give us a lot of medical detail in his book. And, uh, and this is one of the things he's going to do. He, he, he takes him by his right hand and helps him stand to his feet. What happens then immediately? He jumps. Am I catching that? He leaps. He doesn't just walk. He begins to run and jump. It's a guy that's never walked in his life. You ever had somebody... Uh, it, this is usually in a budgetary conversation, okay? Somebody will say to you, eh, we got to walk before we run. <laughs> Evidently not so. <laughs> Am I right? I think he ran before he walked and kind of jumped a little bit. It, in your mind, you know, see James Brown. I feel good. <laughs> you know, but he's hopping. <laughs> And lots of people are there that see that. And it's interesting that the people in verse 11, their reaction is what? Amazement, astonishment. But they do something physical as well. What do they do? They run and catch Peter and John and say, what is going on? How did this happen? And they find them there being kind of, uh, the word accosted is too strong because they're, kind of, they're obviously interested in this guy, but he's holding on to them in gratitude. And, uh, and so, um, so here they are. Now, look at verse 8. With a leap, he stood up, right, began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So that's the deal. The problem is, he wasn't quiet. 
And the leaders of the temple, if this guy would have been quiet, they would have probably been a little better with this whole thing. But he just wasn't quiet. He just wouldn't shut up. You know? And so the next time the Sanhedrin met, they would begin to talk about the problem they've got now with Mr. Walker. <laughs> okay? Mr. Walker was our new problem. He used to be Mr. Beggar. Now he's Mr. Walker. Okay? They got a problem. Isn't it interesting? When you begin to talk about what Jesus has done for you, it causes people to kind of make a decision. Whether or not they're going to believe you. Uh, what they personally feel about Jesus and his, who he was and his role, period, and certainly his role in your life. Well, that's kind of what we've come up against. Uh, up against. Now look at verse 12. Okay. The people gathered. So they run to Peter and John. What in the world is going on? And the Bible says here, they are staring at Peter and John. By the way, did I not fill your first blank? The guy's become a bit of a problem. All right. He's become a problem. Now, so they run over Hundreds of people gathered. They run over. Look at Peter and John. They're, the Bible says they're staring at Peter and John. Why? Because they think they did it. <laughs> Aren't you glad that Peter and John didn't get this wrong? Okay? Aren't you glad that Peter and John didn't say, yes, and if you'll send me 25 bucks, I'll send you my latest book. Put your hand on the screen. No, you know, they didn't do any of that. It's very interesting to me. Their first words are pretty much, don't look at us. They're staring at them and they say, don't look at us. I want to I frame this for you, and I've got to be really careful about this because I love what goes on in this particular project. Uh, our whole family just loves what goes on in the Dollar Club. But don't miss the point of the Dollar Club. The point of the Dollar Club is not to get people in the community to say, hey, look at us. Am I right? The point of the Dollar don't mishear me here. I love it. But the point of the Dollar Club is to get people to say, for us to get an opportunity to say, look at him. He's still doing this. 2,000 years later, he's still impacting lives. And he's impacted mine. And I do this because of that. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, so let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give you a high five, right? That they may see your good works and give you a fist bump. That they may see your good works and say, look at him. God is so good. By the way, and this happens in our day for people who previously didn't think that God was all that good. It couldn't be more important he did this. Your faith ought to result in action that makes other people say, 
Wow, God is good. Can I say that again? Your faith ought to result in the kind of action that makes other people say, Wow, God is good. I'm so glad that Peter and John didn't get this backwards. I really, really am. Now, verse 13 Okay, Peter's got a crowd. Watch out when you get a crowd in front of a preacher, okay? They're probably going to preach. Sorry. Kind of how it works. So, anybody ever send you a text and it says, begins with BTW? By the way? That's, that's shorthand for by the way. We don't write those things out. I'm grading papers these days, and, and kids write papers in... in uh, you know, LOL speech sometimes, you know. BTW. Well, this is, a, this is Peter's BTW here. By the way, Peter takes an opportunity to connect Jesus with the faith of the ancient patriarchs. So he's going to give credit where credit's due. Look at verse 6. Okay, listen to verse 6. But Peter said, I don't possess silver and gold. I am busted. I'm broke. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Some translations read Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. So Peter is giving credit to where credit is due. But as he launches into to his kind of talk here in verse 13, he's going to make the connection between uh, Jesus and the faith of the ancient patriarchs. In particular, he mentions three of them. Who are they? Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, and Jacob. And those are kind of the three most important ones. Now, in order to catch this, you got to go with me to Genesis 12, verse 3. That shouldn't be too hard to find because it's at the far left of your Bible. Let's go to Genesis 12, verse 3. Sally, when you get there, can I get you to read that verse? Um, it's going to identify promises. It's in the context of promises that, Jesus made, that uh, God made to Abraham. But he'll make the same promises to Abraham's son Isaac, and he'll later then, in the next generation, make the very same promises to Isaac's son, Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Okay, Same promises, given mostly in the same way, but included in those promises is the original telling of it in Genesis 12, when we get to verse 3, and here's what God says to Abraham. All people on the earth will be blessed. In, the, in, in another translation, it will say, by or through your seed. Okay? That's what is, is said. That's the promise here. And Peter connects what's going on here and the work of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus uh, with the promise that God made to the patriarchs. The world is going to be blessed God says to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, the world is going to be blessed through you people. And Peter's going to say, it's starting to happen. The world is blessed as this man has been blessed by him. And by the way, he's going to add another BTW, whom, by the way, you crucified. <laughs> 
uh, it's very interesting that he takes this opportunity. If you read the book of Acts in this way, it'll, it'll help you to catch it. Anytime uh, there is a gathering of people, anytime something comes up where, where Peter or um, uh, Paul, for instance, gets an opportunity to make a statement about Jesus, they're going to do it. Do, Karen, do I see your hand? Oh, I'm sorry. Genesis 12, verse 3. It's not on your outline. And you can back up a couple of verses from it, Gloria, and get the other promises. But that's, that's the one that's most important to us because it's really talking about when, when he says to Abraham, when God says to Abraham, all the world will be blessed through your seed, he's not just talking about uh, Jewish people making an impact on the world, even though that's true. He's talking about the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the son of David, the son of Joseph and Mary, who blesses the world, the seed of Abraham. Couldn't be more important. Peter helps them kind of make, connect the dots here. And so he begins to talk about then, uh, I think it's really interesting how kind of in your face he becomes here. Look at verse 14. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Peter, tell it like it is, you know. Don't beat around the bush here. Now, how does he identify Jesus? The, uh, well, in 14, we're going to get to that in a minute. But right here, what does he call him? Holy, righteous, okay. Um, he The author of life, okay. He's going to call him here uh, the holy one, the righteous one. Now, can I tell you something? This is, if Peter had gone a little further, he went far enough. But he could say, as you and I can say, he's the holy one, the righteous one, the only innocent man to ever live. And certainly the only innocent person ever to be put to death. The Got to catch it. The only one that lived a completely innocent life is this one. The only innocent man is put to death while a murderer goes free. That's the context of verse 14. It's kind of what he's getting to here. Man's rebellion has reached its lowest point at the cross. Who's the murderer he's invoking here? Barabbas? Initially, he's referring to him. I wonder if sometimes Peter's referring to himself in some ways. He was, a, he was one who um, uh, denied Jesus. You could argue that all of us have been implicit in his death by our sins. Meanwhile, the only one who ever lived a completely righteous and holy Innocent life was put to death. It's quite an irony, really. Now, in verse 15, there's another ironic statement. A couple of you mentioned it talks about the author of death, uh, the author of life here. Ironic, okay? Uh, Peter's going to say, you sent to death 
the one who came to restore life to the dead. Well, I mean, that, that's really interesting. You put to death the one who came to restore life to those who are already dead. So, uh, he kind of, there's a couple of ideas here. I want us to go to a couple of places to kind of illustrate it. Who will go to John 1, 3? Thank you, John. And let's go to Isaiah 53, verse 5. Looking for a hand. Thank you, Cindy. Okay. Isaiah 53, verse 5, John 1, 3. He uses two terms here that kind of gives us, he identifies Jesus as, in a couple of ways. Who is this one, he says, whom you killed? Okay, he's the author of life is what he calls him here. That word author means the originator. Uh, uh, um, it's kind of this idea, who, the one who began life, the one who authored life, the one who originated it is the one you put to death. Uh, John 1, 3, John. Huge faith, I mean, huge faith challenge for them, uh, probably um, even more so than for us these days. But the idea is that the Bible identifies Jesus as the divine creator, the author of life in that way, the one who made the world and all in it. John identifies him that way. By the way, John was in this scene, okay? He heard what Peter said. When he writes his gospel later, he calls him, he kind of calls him out as the divine creator in John 1, 3. And then Isaiah 53, which gives us this picture of Jesus from the pen of Isaiah from 700 years or so uh, B.C., uh, calls him, uh, talks about his relationship to life in that way. Um, okay, who's got 53, 5, Isaiah, Cindy, Isaiah 53, 5? really, really important piece of scripture. He's the restorer of life. The restorer of life. He's the one who created life. He's the one who began life. He's the originator of life. He's the author of life. And when man began to make the wrong choices and live a life of death, he's the one who came, gave his life so that we could have our lives restored the restorer of life. Ironic, isn't it? If this were only a story, it would be a really good story. Because it's true, it's the greatest story ever told, right? Now, let's read on, okay? Uh, John, can I come back to you and have you read verse 16 down through 18? All right, now, Peter is going to go on to talk about the miracle that's before them demonstrates 
his claim regarding Jesus. He's going to say that this man, his life, his walking around is a visible manifestation of the invisible God. Okay? So he's going to say that the man's wholeness, his healing, comes as a result of faith in the name of Jesus, literally. It's this idea. If you remember what Peter says in verse 6, he says to him, I don't have any money, but if you'll believe the name of Jesus, you can walk. Get up. Okay? So this idea is that this healing is a physical manifestation manifestation. It's something we can see. It's something they've seen with their eyes of witness, but it's symbolic of a larger truth, an, an, um, um, uh, an invisible truth about God. Now, in verse 17, he deals a little bit with the issue of ignorance. Now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance. Isn't it interesting that he's already called them out uh, indicted them for the murder of God in the flesh. And then he says, you know, I know you acted in ignorance. Is that consistent with anything in the Gospels? If you look at Luke's parallel Gospel in, in, in 23, in fact, let's go there. Let's go to 23, uh, 34. Luke 23, 34. Just back a few pages. You're going to see Jesus himself Say it. <coughs> Somebody read verse 34. As Peter begins to preach here, he says, what you did, you did in ignorance. Jesus acknowledges that from the cross. But after Peter begins to talk about this, no long, the ignorance plea is now off the table. For them, certainly for you and me, we've heard the gospel, right? Um, so in this point, uh, they're without excuse. We're without excuse. Ignorant, ignorance is um, kind of voided. That idea is kind of ended. And so he goes on to say, not only is that true, that, that you put to death the Son of God, but you did it kind of innocently. You didn't know for sure what was going on. Jesus acknowledges that from the cross. But look at verse 18. He's going to make the connection and say, not only is this Jesus, the one who was the fulfillment of the prom God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he's going to say, this is the one, this man, this Jesus, is the one the prophets told us about. Not just Isaiah. Isaiah did tell us about him. The, if you start with chapter 52, read 53 and on, the idea of the suffering servant of Isaiah is very clear there. But what he's going to say is that it wasn't just Isaiah. It was all the prophets. This was the outcome of everything said through all the prophets. Not just one of them. Not just two of them. Not just Isaiah and maybe a little bit in Jeremiah. This is the result of what all the prophets said. Everything that was done was predicted. Everything was said through all the prophets. Now, join me at, at verse 19. We'll kind of bring this to a close. Verse 19. Therefore, repent and return 
so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. This wholeness, he says, is here. Now, so, when you think of the word refreshment, what do you think of? You called it, I saw, I saw, what'd you say, Troy? Iced tea, absolutely. I, I think of mowing the grass and iced tea on a hot summer day. I, you know, it doesn't get much better than that, does it? Uh, yesterday, um, um, watched a little football. By the way, the, uh, the, the right team won yesterday, but uh, I just thought I'd say that. Uh, Jackie, am I right? Okay, all right. Uh, I, I pulled, a, I got an old pot machine on my back porch. You and I have talked about this. But I don't have just Coke in there, although I like Coke. I've got Ale 8 in there. Have I told you about Ale 8? Okay. Ale 8 is a Kentucky drink. You can only get it in Kentucky. Actually, you can get it at Pops because Paul got me some at Pops because he heard me talk about it before. It's kind of a sweet ginger ale that has like 90 times the caffeine of, uh, of Mountain Dew. I, I, okay. Uh, it, it, it really, it's probably not, uh, well, probably is no, uh, folks in Kentucky call it swamp water, okay? Um, but I got hooked on it in the, in the 80s, okay? I mean, it's, um, uh, and I'll tell you when I got hooked on it, you'll remember this. I was working at a youth camp in eastern Kentucky in, um, in a place where you would go buy an old trailer house that that the porch was falling through, but they had a satellite dish in, on the, in the yard somewhere. And 90 cases of empty 8L8 bottles somewhere on the property, okay? It was in that, in Bath County, Kentucky, where the, where the Church of God Youth Camp was, and I would work there in the summertime, and there was an old L8 machine in a, in a pavilion on, in that place, and it didn't work exactly right, but it wonderfully didn't work exactly right. Because when it was the hottest and when it was the worst, you could put a quarter, it seemed like it was a quarter. Nuts. Put a, which added to my addiction, by the way. You put a quarter in the machine, and what you, when you opened the bottle, these were returnable bottles, by the way. When you opened the bottle, what met you at the top of the neck of the bottle was ice. <clears throat> I can taste it right now. Now, Troy, I love iced tea, but ale eight in a bottle with ice in it can't be beat too much, okay? By the way, this, is, this doesn't have alcohol in it, okay? Don't go there. I, I've got some in the machine at home. I had one yesterday while I was watching the game. Thanks to Paul. Do what? I did have hair back then. That may be where it went. Uh, what does the Bible say? What, is, what does Peter say is the source of refreshment in verse 19? It's not Kentucky swamp water. Not even iced tea, Troy. Repentance. Huh. Repentance. 
It's the idea that true relief comes from breaking the cycle of human rebellion and it's been done. What I've got to say to you is you don't need to wait for some future event to turn all this around. You don't need to wait for Jesus to return. Now, he's going to return, and I, I'm ready for that. There are some days when I read the newspaper and I think, I wish it were today. Because I'm worried about what, I'm, what kind of world I'm handing off to my grandchildren. But the truth is, I don't need to wait for some future occasion. The day of repentance has come. The day of rebellion should be over. Their ultimate refreshment is to stop rebelling, to turn and repent. I read a story this week about a young man by the name of Connor McBride who walked into a Tallahassee police station on March 28th in 2010 and he said, you need to arrest me. I just shot my fiance in the head. He was telling the truth. He and Anne Margaret Grossemeyer had argued for 38 hours straight. Then he shot her. In the hospital, Anne was unconscious. When her father was sure, she said, forgive him before she died. Connor was charged with first-degree murder. But Anne's parents didn't want him to spend his life in prison. So a prison chaplain that they met told them about the concept of restorative justice. I'm just starting to read about this. It's an approach to sentencing in which the prisoner, his family, officials, and the family of the victim try to agree on a lesser sentence than the law requires. And it happened. Connor's sentence for murder was reduced to 20 years. Restorative justice. God's system of restorative justice works differently. It's spelled G-R-A-C-E. Uh, the idea here, the system requires no gathering of various parties to agree to a reduced sentence. God's grace simply means there is no sentence. Why would any of us reject that kind of an offer? And if you read the last two verses, you realize, and I shared with you a moment ago, that the time is now. An older man went to the emergency room recently in his town. And uh, at 4 o'clock in the morning, with no complaints, he said, I've been having chest pain for four months, but I'm not having chest pain now. The reason I'm here is because I heard that 4 a.m. is the best time to come because there's not too many people waiting in the waiting room. <laughs> Don't try that. Can I tell you the beauty of the gospel? There is no wait. If there's a beauty in the Advent season, in the story of Christmas, Isaiah said it in chapter 7. Matthew connected the dots in Matthew 1. God is with us now. And the time for res restoration is now. That's what goes in your last blank. The time is now. No waiting. The Lord is in the process of restoring this rebellious world. And I would submit to you as evidence 
Look around this room. I can tell you story after story after story after story. And I'm the worst of them. That God has refreshed my soul and restored me in the spirit of Acts 3.19.